If you would, take your Bibles to Ephesians 4. We'll be reading the first 16 verses this morning. As this morning, we're looking at the local church equipped. Uh, We looked several weeks ago at the church and its giving. Uh, Last year, we took a couple of weeks near the end of the summer, coming into the fall, to look at the church and its worship, Uh, the church as it gathers uh, in life groups, being able to see what are these things that are uh, foundational uh, for us, of great importance. This morning, we want to kind of combine all of those things into one message, uh, combining uh, what is it that we as elders here at Calvary really see as a priority for us uh, as a local church? What is it that really uh, gets us going? Why do Sunday school when every church growth book or manual is telling you to shut it down? Why keep it going? Uh, We think it's valuable, and I hope that as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, we find that primarily this church is going to be rooted in the scriptures. We really want to come back to being equipped for uh, the work that God has us to do here in our area, in our valley, according to the scriptures. We'll read our passage here in just a minute, but let me open with a story about our oldest child when he was born. Our oldest child, when he was born, weighed a whopping five pounds, six ounces. In the next few days, though, he lost several ounces and dropped to just under five pounds, if not closer to like four pounds, eight ounces. He was little. Most children lose a little weight after being born, but you can imagine that weight gain was the priority for us when we went home with this four and a half pound tax deduction emphasized by our doctors. He needs to gain weight. They wanted him to be healthy and so did we. There was no magic weight gain formula. You could just give him and he would instantly beef up in 24 hours. But we did feed him every day, several times a day. He ate. Every time he would spit up, we would feel defeated. We would feel like he was taking in food And we could slowly begin to see him getting chunky. We kept praying he would eat good, gain weight, and Sarah kept feeding him. I still remember when he was two months old, we were at our small group gathering. We met at Tim and Jamie's house. Jamie had a baby scale, and we all wanted to see how much weight this guy had gained in just two months. So our small group had lots of kids, and they'd all been cheering him on since they had met him, that he would gain weight. So we all gathered around the scale, and we did what any church small group does. We all took bets to see how much he would weigh. (laughs) Remember, two months ago, this little guy was four pounds something. So the guesses all came in, and we put him on the scale. His belly and arm rolls told us he had definitely gained weight. (laughs) But we couldn't believe when we saw the scale, he was over 12 pounds. Now, that might not be a lot for some other two-month-olds. I was born at almost 10 pounds. But for this kid, it was unbelievable. How did he achieve this growth? Slowly, daily, meal after meal, and most times without any visible signs of growth. He just kept eating the food that was being given to him. Do you know that the same is true for us spiritually? When we come to know Christ as our Savior, we begin a new life in Christ. We have been recreated. We died with Christ 
to our old man. And we have been raised to newness of life as a spiritual infant in need of food and growth. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Before salvation, the Bible was just a book to us. But as a Christian, it is God's word to us. It is food for our souls. And we are hungry to read it and to know it. And just as God gives that newborn baby parents to feed it, care for it, and help it grow, so God gives the infant Christian, the church, to feed him or her, to care for them, and to help them grow. With both physical and spiritual babies, it is God who brings the growth. So then how do we as a church, gathered here as Calvary Baptist Church, help one another grow spiritually? How do we, as Jesus commands, make disciples? What food are we as a church offering to you? How are we equipping you to feed yourselves and turn and feed other spiritual infants? Will you join me as we read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16? You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of of the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer children, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together, By every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow your heads as we pray and ask God's blessing on it? Father, please feed us this morning from your word. And would your spirit continue to work in and among us to change us and shape us? 
And Father, if there is someone here who does not know you, who does not see uh, this scriptures as the word of God and has not put their faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, Father, that they would do so this morning. And we ask that we would be changed by your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a minute to look at some of the main themes in this passage of Ephesians chapter 4. One thing that you will notice is that all of these themes are the result of the work of God in us. Notice the first one. Paul writes, urging the believers, the church in Ephesus, to walk worthy of their calling. Walk worthy of our calling. From verse 1, Paul urges them to walk worthy He'll say this also in Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 1. He will speak, speak to the church in Philippi to walk worthy of the gospel. How do we do that? They have been called by God to salvation, and now the daunting task of, task of walking worthy of that calling. You see, the fruit of walking worthy is similar to the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions here in Ephesians 4. These are ideals of our relationship with each other in the church. We as a fellowship ought to be bearing with one another, patient, gentle, humble, eager to maintain the unity that we have in the Spirit. We were just prayed over from these verses. We have a team of people who pray every day for every family in our church. Every person who is gathered here on a regular basis is prayed over. And this quarter, we're praying for this passage, that we as a body would be gentle and patient, that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because this is written to a church, We have to ask the question how we as a church can help one another walk worthy of our calling. How do we know what it looks like? What types of things do we need in that? Certainly we need help in it. Paul mentions uh, unity here in the fruits that come from walking worthy. And that leads him to his second theme. In this passage, the second theme, one that kind of dominates the entire 16 verses here is unity. And Paul speaks of a theme of being unified in love together. And Paul doesn't come out and command them to be unified. He speaks of it as a fruit of the Spirit, as one when you are walking in a manner worthy, will be unified. But he also comes out and he begins to show a picture of what it would look like to build one another up in love. Paul speaks seven times, repeating the word one, to show that unity already exists among us. You might be familiar with this passage, if for no other reason than the fact that it continually repeats this word one. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Seven times it repeats The word one. We are already in the triune God, united to one another. In mysterious union we have with Christ, we've been united by the Spirit who indwells us with one another as believer to believer. Paul mentions the triune God in this passage. 
We are unified and striving for unity. But the example of the triune God who dwells eternally in perfected unity is the one that we are united by, united to, and united in. Our walking worthy of our calling and living in unity as a diverse community is headed towards a time when we in eternity are fully mature. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul writes later in verse 13, that is the destination we are headed towards, fully united to Christ and one another for all of eternity. The union of brothers and sisters in Christ together is a relationship that will never end. Our relationship to Christ is one, our union with Christ is one that will never end. For all of eternity, we will be united. We are already united, and we are eager to maintain the unity we have already had and received in Christ. So how are we as a church helping us to be eager to maintain unity? Again, the unity we have together comes from Christ, who has unified us in himself brought us into this local church and is unifying us here through a diversity of gifts that Paul writes that he gives to the church. It seems strange that diversity of gifts helps us maintain unity in love. But unity, you know, is not the same as uniformity. We are not called to love one another and be unified if we are all the same. Instead, God, who created us and called us to himself, knows that unity is possible only as a diverse body walks in gospel humility with one another. And that the result of that unity is far more glorious than mere uniformity, where we all like the same things, think the same things, and wear the same things. We are called to maintain unity because it's not natural to us. On our own, we would, wouldn't mind being all by ourselves. On our own, we like to gather with homogenous groups that are like us in lots of ways. But the idea of gathering and being joined with in a local assembly in unity, eager to maintain unity with those who are not like me, in large case for most of us, is unlikely. You might not be likely to join a book club, but even if you were so inclined to join a book club, you'd probably join a book club with people who like a similar genre of book that you like. All of a sudden you join a book club and the books that they're reading are children's novels and you have no desire to read about these fables or novels. You'd rather read historical fiction. You're probably going to find a different book club. The beauty here is that this is a supernatural unity that God has brought together, and God in his kindness has gifted some, as he states here, in diverse gifts, and God who has created us with our own diverse personalities has put us all together. And he gives us a picture of unity in himself. And the union that we have with him, he has already united us to and calls us to be eager to maintain that. We're already united. 
We are called to maintain unity because it's not natural to us. And to help us see this, Paul reveals that Christ, when he redeemed us, gifted us with a diversity of gifts. But all of those gifts are so that the body is equipped and growing in Christ. And the third theme is that, that we see here, this third theme is a diversity of gifts in the church. Now you see that in verse 11. He gave the ascended Christ. I love how this passage, that seems uh, a little bit difficult. The verses that preceded, verses 8 through 10. Uh, He who ascended must have also descended into the earth. And there's lots of questions and debates about those verses especially. But nonetheless, the victorious and ascended Christ comes defeats sin, death, the devil redeems us and gives an array of gifts to his redeemed people. He doesn't have to give us anything. He's already given us redemption, but he does. And the text tells us why he gives gifts to the church. It says, so that we might all grow into him until we all see him. It says, verse 12, he gave the gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We might all grow into him until we see him. Not every gift that is mentioned in other places in scripture is listed here. There's lots of other spiritual gifts that are mentioned in other sections of scripture. Paul only mentions five or so here. But every gift that God has given to us is to serve his church, and it comes from him, and is to be used as he desires. One commentator writes, these gifts here in verse 11 are deliberately emphasized since they provide the church with the teaching of Christ for the edification of the body and for the avoidance of false teaching. These gifts enable others to exercise their own respective gifting so that the body is built to maturity, to wholeness, and to unity. When each person in the church who is gifted uniquely by Christ is humble, walking worthy of their calling, the body is built up and growing as it should be. You see, these gifts are given to equip the saints. And that brings us to the last theme in this passage. And that is that the body is equipped for the work of ministry. Notice how Paul writes, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Shepherds and Teachers, evangelists, prophets, apostles were given to equip the saints. The saints are the ones being equipped for ministry. The people of God, the set-apart ones, the church, are the ministers. All of us serve as ministers. Those gifted as shepherds, pastors, teachers equip the body. Those who are gifted in other ways so that the church is able to do the work of ministry. In this way, pastors and elders function like a pit crew who equip the driver to run the race. Or the pastors and elders are like the supply lines to the soldiers who are in the foxholes. Ministry is not only for pastors and elders, but for all of us as God has gifted. This moves the center focus of ministry off of the pulpit and into the pew, off of the church as an organization and onto the church as its people. This is why gifts are given to equip the members. Can you imagine a church where all of the ministry is only done by paid staff? 
You have a church of 100 people and you've got one guy saddled with all of the ministry that's supposed to be thrown on him for the entire church. How about instead those 100 people serve as ministers to the body and reaching out to their community? Can you imagine the vast impact that is happening? One guy versus 100. Not only does it make sense logically and numerically, but it's biblical. The idea of the pastors and elders, those gifted here to be equipping the saints for the work of ministry. I love when Paul refers to the church, refers to us as saints. He does so in Philippians chapter 1. He does so here, reminding us. Saints aren't uh, dead people who supposedly have done a miracle. They're ones who miracles have already been done for, and that is redemption. We are saints in the eyes of God, perfectly justified, as Paul gives in Ephesians 1. You've been thrust into the heavenlies, experiencing every heavenly blessing in Christ. You, brothers and sisters, are already saints, and God's design is that you would be equipped to do the work of ministry here in this church and in our city. Sometimes people within the church want to know what the church is doing about this issue. What are we doing about homelessness? What is our church doing about evangelism? Or how do we reach our community? How is our church reaching our community? The answer could be whatever its members have been equipped to do. When we as a church member see a shortcoming in our church outreach or care for others, we should not say, I am saying with you, we should not say, the church should really do something about that. Or the pastor really ought to get on that. But rather, God, you've shown me this shortcoming. How can I help in this area to meet this need? How do I need to be equipped to help serve in this area of ministry that you have laid on my heart? You have convicted me about. The question then is, how are we as elders at Calvary equipping you as the church to do the work of ministry here? In our desire to obey Christ and his word, how do we as a church make disciples? Matthew 28. How do we equip the saints for the work of ministry? How do we together as a body walk worthy of our calling in the gospel, eagerly maintaining unity in the body until Jesus returns or calls us home? How do we do that? The rest of our time this morning, we'll be looking at how we as elders of Calvary desire to do that here. And for those that have gone here for a long time, it's nothing new. In fact, years ago, the church and its elders came up with a purpose statement. I'll read it to you. You might, some of you might know it by heart. I have added a preface at the beginning. It's not the established preface, but it says, we are a gospel-centered family who desire, and the purpose statement is to glorify the triune God through worship, fellowship, and discipleship, that he might, through us, advance his kingdom and impact the world. You see that already. I mean, you see some of those themes from Ephesians 4, the triune God, glorifying the triune God through worship, fellowship, discipleship. And then the advancing of his kingdom, that he does this work in and through us. We already saw some of that in the short time that we walked through Ephesians 4. The elders here at Calvary desire to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
so together, glorifying the triune God. And the way that we see that coming through the best is by things that we are already doing. But let me share with you the intentionality that the elders are setting forward in a desire to obey the scriptures, what we as a church at Calvary desire to do. That's two things. If we can look at two priorities for us as believers to be equipped, the, the elders desire to infuse these two aspects with what we as a body would need for being equipped before anybody would all of a sudden have the hairs on the back of their neck raise up and say, hey, what about this? What about this? We're going to hit those caveats, okay? So two things. One is Sunday morning. So our Sunday morning when we gather for Sunday school and gathered worship and our life groups. Our desire is to infuse those two things with what we as a church need to be equipped. So we mentioned Sunday school. We want intentional core seminars to teach you theology and practice. Why do we need to know church history? Because when you start studying church history, you find out that there is nothing new under the sun, literally. In every way that we are admonished in the scriptures to, uh, the, that people will take and twist the scriptures, we see that already in 2,000 years of church history. There's nothing new with Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness not believing that Jesus is fully God. That's been going on since the beginning. You begin to see people who can teach you and instruct you in a way that I can't. Maybe our elders aren't gifted in that way, but other men have written these things and you can read that and be encouraged and built up and equipped. We want to introduce you to other men who are writing, women who are writing good books on theology, counseling, how to care for one another in the body, how to apply the scriptures on a daily basis. We have core seminars like doctrine. Doctrines one class, doctrines two, looking at the doctrines of who God is, theology proper, who Christ is, Christology, or what are angels and demons? What about the end times? Being able to study those doctrines together. I have a class on hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. Classes on worldview and apologetics counseling, caring for one another, marriage, parenting, stewardship. How do we think about how we steward our money, how we steward our society, how we steward uh, our time and our energies? Class on evangelism, discipleship, so that you as the people of God can be equipped. At this time, I'm going to hit one of the caveats. One of the hair-raising things that maybe somebody says, hey, what about all the Bible studies that we offer throughout the week? You only mentioned Sunday morning and life groups. We offer a host of great Bible studies for men and women, youth group Awana, that meet all throughout the week and are wonderful ways of growing in Christ and His Word. These are more homogenous groups. So as we mentioned, they're going to be centered on women, women's ministry, and not always women's issues, but women gathering together with women, men gathering together with men, youth gathering together with youth, and Awana being uh, a program that the kids are gathering and being instructed in the scriptures and scripture memory. Whereas Sunday school has the opportunity to be on Sunday morning taught mostly by elders or men in our church who are walking through a directed curriculum and they're not homogenous groups. You have men and women, teenagers, and older folks all gathered together and studying and learning together so that that teenager can hear from an 85-year-old what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. 
And the 74-year-old is infused with vigor and energy because of the 22-year-old who just came to faith in Christ. And all of a sudden, these brothers and sisters are sharpening one another because hopefully in humility in the gospel, they are eager to maintain unity with one another. And it's these intergenerational and these diverse groups that will help one another, we pray, grow in Christ. We also understand that there's a time aspect and that for some to be involved in Sunday morning and a life group and a Bible study and a WANA and youth group and another Bible study for your husband is now all of a sudden six days a week you're at the church. And now what do you not have time for? Work, (laughs) family. You might not have time for rest and a day off, a Sabbath. And because we get so busy, all of a sudden it might actually lead to burnout, but maybe to sickness. All of a sudden, so much good is being infused in us and so much time. We want to be careful of that. And so the elders want to shepherd that as well. How do we care well for one another? For some of you, Sunday morning isn't going to work as well. So getting up early and being here as a family isn't going to work. So those Bible study options for mom and dad are fantastic options. For others, your work schedule can't do life group. And so you need that midweek Bible study that's going to gather. And we fully recognize that. But when we look at the ministries that we offer, we really want to encourage our families and individuals here at Calvary to really consider coming and saying, for one year, I'm going to take you elders up on it. And I'm going to invest our family deeply. We can do other things as well, for sure. I'm going to continue doing my men's Bible study on Thursday morning because we're going through Bonhoeffer's book and it's been fantastic. And you're going to probably keep some other things. But take us up on it. What is Sunday morning, Sunday school, gathered worship, life group? Look, for our family, we want to be fully equipped. And for some who just can't do it time-wise, even ask us, hey, what are you going through in that Sunday school class? I'd like to read that on my own and maybe have conversations with you. We would love to be able to do that. We want to set an intentional curriculum with our Sunday school seminars that are designed with the intention that we as the church would be fully equipped for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Sunday school, also our gathered worship. So we look intentionally, as no doubt every church does, but we look intentionally at the elements of our gathered worship. We believe that not only is the time when we gather here on Sunday mornings worship, but all of life is worship. Romans chapter 12 speaks of worship being something we, in our view of God and our understanding of Him as our King, we are all, always in a state, always to be in a state of worship. We can worship on our own. We can worship with the Word and the Scriptures on our own. We can worship as we're working, worship as we're playing, worshiping in the things that God has given to us, recognizing Him as our King. And the beauty is then on Sunday, once a week, we get to gather with the entire gathered body and worship together. And our weekly individual worship comes and joins with the body and is sweet. All of life is worship. But when we gather together, all of our service is worship as well. You see, often music is considered worship. When the worship is done, then the preaching will happen. Hopefully, preaching is worship as well. I don't know about you, but I was deeply impacted by the scripture readings this morning. 
All of a sudden, hearing the story of Israel and how God worked to bring, them, bring Moses the tablets on the mountain and declare his name to him, Moses' response to that, reading out of Psalm 78, I was deeply impacted by that. That's actually God's word. How much more impactful than even songs that were written by men that speak of God's word. All of our services worship, even the time when we're fellowshipping with one another, seeing the work that God has done to bring us together. Let me give you a quote from James Smith. He says this, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we, just don't, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give Him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Knowing that as a church, we desire our worship to be gospel-centered, centering on the gospel of what God has done for us. We sang about it. God came and gave his life for this sinner. We're not afraid to speak honestly. If you can't be honest in the church, where can you be? To speak honestly of our sin and our need for the gospel. Some might say, but I'm not a worm anymore, like amazing grace might say. I'm still a sinner in need, desperate need of grace. Redeemed sinner in need of constant grace. So we remember the gospel. Our worship is to be gospel-centered. Christ-exalting and word-saturated. We want the focus to be on the person of Christ, not on us, not on a band, not on a preacher, not on a singer as if they're a performer. We are not gathered for a social hour. We are gathered collectively to focus on the person of Christ. Now, someone might say, why not God-focused or God-centered instead of Christ-focused? I think because many religions or people can say they are God-focused, but they get Jesus wrong. Also because the scriptures themselves point to Christ as the goal of all the Old Testament promises, the hope for mankind, and the goal of Revelation when we will see the lion, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world and all are bowing down to Christ. We want to focus on Christ. We want to saturate our worship with the scriptures The Word of God is central for us here at Calvary. John Piper, in a sermon entitled, The Place of Preaching and Worship, says, The Protestant church has put the Word of God at the most prominent place in corporate worship. Because worship is a seeing and savoring of God Himself. God reveals Himself as the Word and by the Word. In particular, God does his works in the world by his word, gives new life by his word, awakens faith by his word. Without the word of God, there would be no life, no faith, no work, no revelation, and no worship. The word of God is to worship as air is to breathing. The question we would ask is why are churches throwing out the word of God in their worship? We want to saturate our, our services on the word of God. So we want to preach the word. As Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy, preach the word. There's going to come a time when people will turn themselves away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Uh, 
finding teachers who suit their itching ears. We want to teach people from the Scriptures. We want to preach the Word. We want to preach expositorily from all of Scripture, from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We want to go back and forth so that you can get an idea of how all of the Scriptures fit together. So you're not uh, facing malnutrition, but you are growing in a healthy diet of the Old and New Testaments so that there's not confusion, but clarity. When you yourself come to the Scriptures to read it, we want to preach from all of God's Word. We want to preach to see the message of God revealed in His Word. We want to listen and hear what He has written for, our, for His glory and for our blessing. We also want to sing the Word. We want to sing Scripture-saturated songs. Psalm 95 says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Colossians 3 will speak of how we sing to one another. Tim Challies writes in an article on congregational singing. He says, I'm convinced that the best measure of a church's music is not what takes place on the stage, but what takes place in the pews. It is not so much the sights and sounds of a band leading, but the sounds and sights of a congregation worshiping. A church with a truly great music program is one that could worship just as well on the day the power goes out and the instruments won't play. A church with a truly great music program is the one that generates far more sound from its raw voices than amplified instruments. A church with a really great music program is the one where the people sing. They really sing. Singing is one of the few parts of the worship service in which every person participates and serves. Yet we rarely train our congregations to participate and serve well in this key ministry that we do multiple times every time we gather. We take our songs seriously that we select here. We look at the lyrics. We look at how they're sung. We look at the way that we sing them. Are they fit for congregational singing? What we don't want is a band up here who just plays for you and we get to listen and say, isn't this nice? But where we're actively participating and singing. Why? Because we need it. We desperately need to remember that God is holy, 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 and I am not. We desperately need to remember the prayer that God would be my vision. Matt Boswell says songs are sermons. They don't work like homiletical exegesis, opening up a text, but they articulate, exegete, and pronounce biblical truths. Our hymns and all of our songs should teach and shape the way people view God, man, Christ, and how we're to live in light of the gospel. That's why we take our songs and the selecting of them seriously. We want to sing the word. We want to pray the word, as Bob demonstrated this morning, opening up from Ephesians 4 and rooting his prayer for the congregation in the scriptures. Colossians 4 says to devote yourselves to prayer. We want to set aside substantial time to pray during our public gathering. One author writes, when you devote substantial time to prayer in the public meeting, it should not be a surprise if your church members learn to prioritize prayer in their private lives. So we want to take the scriptures and pray them back to God. We want to pray the word. We want to read the word. We read from the scriptures every Sunday morning from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Psalms. We want to make that a habit. Uh, There was one church uh, overseas who had made it a habit to do that. 
and they found themselves all of a sudden, they just worked through the New Testament in one of their readings. And they celebrated on the Sunday that they finished the New Testament because they had, as a whole congregation, read through the entire New Testament out loud together. That's a lot of reading. That's a lot of time gathering together to hear the public reading of scriptures. Paul commands Timothy to do that in 1 Timothy 4. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So often people want to hear God speak audibly to them. And I've mentioned this several times. You want to hear God speak audibly to you. Read the scriptures out loud. That's God's word for us. And we read it here regularly as we can. We also want to see the word. This one might be a little bit different. But seeing the grace that God has given by his word, he commands us in the scriptures to baptize and to keep the Lord's Supper. These are opportunities for us to see the word as we celebrate and observe the ordinances God has given to us as we regularly participate in baptisms and in the Lord's Supper. Our church is not designed, our service is not designed solely and with the purpose of being sensitive or seeker sensitive. For those who are coming, we want to design it so that when they come, they're like, oh, I've heard all this. This is awesome. They speak in my language. I know exactly what you guys are talking about. Because we're going to have a unique language that speaks of the gospel. We're going to talk about gospel and sin and redemption. And we're going to use words that they might not always understand. Sometimes that can come across as, well, you don't care about lost people coming to your service. And we recognize that the scriptures say in Ephesians chapter 4, our goal is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And yet eager to maintain the unity of the body in love. What that does in us is it creates us to be a hospitable people who are humble and desiring that all would come to hear the gospel. You see, again, it's not an organizational thing. How do we organizationally craft this service so that a lost person would come in and be all in on the service? They're going to be confused. They're going to be offended. They're going to be all of a sudden confused, wondering why are they talking like this? They're going to need us as individuals to be around them, to answer their questions, to love them, to take them out to lunch afterward and say, what was so confusing? How can I help you? I want to get to know you a little bit better. I want to care for you. So how do we do that? How do we be hospitable in relation to the gospel and loving those who come in, whatever their background might be? There's an illustration one author gave of him traveling to France. He said when he went to France, he didn't expect his French hosts to become Americans in order to make him feel at home. He said, I don't expect them to start speaking English, ordering pizza, talking about the Yankees, and so on. I'm slightly offended that that's what he thinks Americans do. Don't talk about the Yankees. Indeed, if I wanted that, he said, I would have stayed home. Instead, What I'm hoping for is to be welcomed into their unique French culture. That's why I've come to France in the first place. And I know that this will take some work on my part. I'm expecting things to be different. Indeed, I'm looking for this difference. So also, I think, with hospitable worship, seekers are looking for something our culture can't provide. Many don't want a religious version of what they can already get at the mall. And this is especially true of postmodern or Gen X seekers. They're looking for elements of transcendence, of God-sized things and challenge that MTV could never give them. Rather than an MTV version of the gospel, 
They're seeking for the mysterious practices of the ancient gospel. We order our services on the scriptures. We looked at Sunday and we look at life groups. Two minutes. Ephesians 4 was telling us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you've been called. Humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. You can't do that only on Sunday morning. You can't grow in such a relationship with believers only on Sunday morning to be in an intentional community for the purpose of living authentically in just a few minutes that we have on Sunday morning. I'm barely getting your name. And a lot of times, especially for a lot of you new folks, I'm not even getting that right sometimes. We need more time with one another. We join an intentional community that's centered on the scriptures, gathering around prayer and a table to eat meals with one another, to fellowship together, to enjoy accountability and join in mission with one another. So that as believers, we are fully equipped for the work of ministry, for every good work. Our human nature needs community. God exists in community of the Trinity. Man was alone in the garden and it wasn't good. God knew he needed someone else like him. Our definition for life groups is that they, exist, they consist of those who regularly gather to glorify God by growing in Christ and true community. They're different than our Sunday morning gathering purpose. They're different than our Sunday school purpose. They gather through studying and applying Scripture together, through genuine fellowship and prayer and relationships. They share meals together. They're accountable to one another, and they engage in mission together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says, it is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Brothers and sisters, we can't do that on just Sunday morning. We need another time that is intentionally centered on building relationships to drive us deeper into the gospel, that we would be fully equipped for every good work. Genuine fellowship, C.J. Mahaney writes, isn't practical in a crowd of 200 or 2,000. That's why I feel so strongly that churches must create small groups where Christians can develop intimate relationships, where they can know and be known. A church following a biblical model will not just have small groups. They will not merely offer small groups. It will be built with small groups. When we gather in our life groups right now, our curriculum is the sermon. So we apply the sermon together. And we pray that the life group is a diverse group of people, generationally, uh, men, women, children, people gathering, so that again, like that Sunday school model, but on a deeper basis in the home, around food, because food fixes a lot of things, all of a sudden we're gathering and we're learning and we're growing in life together. We're hurting one another so that we can forgive one another. We're helping one another so that we can grow together. All of a sudden, we're seeing growth come. So as a small group, we see that four-pound little guy all of a sudden grow. And after months together, you don't always see it day after day. 
You don't always see that growth, but someone's going to come, man, you used to be like that. Now we're seeing this grace that God has shown to you that only can come in deep relationship through the theology that can come in Sunday schools, the worship of the gathering, gathered body on Sunday mornings. And as we gather in life groups, we pray as elders that God would continue to equip this church for the work of ministry until we attain the unity of faith to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we thank you for uh, this text. What a glorious text that comes on the heels of incredible grace that you have showered on us. We read in Ephesians 1 and 2 of how you have blessed us with every blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2, we read of our sin and how we were going the exact opposite way of a relationship with you. And yet, God, you and your love, you redeemed us. Who weren't looking for it, you redeemed us. You showered grace upon us. You gave us a new heart and a new life. And now you call us into the body. And we pray that, God, you would allow us the grace to be able to recognize what is What is it that you are desiring to do in our family, my life, as an individual, as a family, as a couple? How you do desire to grow us, that we would be equipped. It's not just about what I want to do. What what study do I like? And let me do this and take a little bit of that. But how can we invest deeply in what our elders are, are looking at, equipping us with? Father, there are so many things that can be taking our time. Would you continue to draw us to being believers? who are rooting ourselves in the scriptures into this body. And Father, by doing so, you would continue to grow us for your glory. And we pray for the advance of your kingdom that others, our neighbors, our friends, our family, would begin to see that change that is happening in us. As Ephesians says, this change that is happening in us. And that, Father, the time that we have, would we be able to share with them the good news of the gospel, invite them into the community of believers that we are partnered with, and that they too would be, uh, become your children, equipped for every good work, for the work of ministry. Father, continue to keep us focused on you and your word, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.